This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everyone. Hello. Where are we, Andy? We're in a tent (laughs) at the Paul Elliott Festival. Basking in sunshine. And a few days ago, on the on Friday the 19th of July, 2019, so historians know when it was, yeah. we recorded the episode you're about to hear. We were in a village near Oxford in the house of Philip and Jude Pullman. In fact, we were in their kitchen, which is very... Yeah. You know, we, we have this thing for, for kitchen tables. Yeah, but, we recorded around a kitchen table, but it was a different kitchen table. It was a different kitchen table. But rather touchingly, they hadn't got a table that wasn't absolutely tottering with piles of books. Uh, the kitchen table was fit- pretty full of books, but we then managed to clear a space for us. It was the sort of house that you dream uh, Sir Philip Pullman or any writer you like lived in. It was basically just stacked with books and musical instruments. Yeah. So it's episode 100. It's slightly self-regarding for us to talk about that. But we want to just say we are astonished uh, to still be doing this. We love doing it. We're really grateful to you lot for Sticking with us, there's so many podcasts you could be listening to. So many of them are about murders. <laughs> Relatively few of ours are about murders. But, but some of them are, but they rhyme sometimes. Yeah. Out, don't they? And um, I love gassing on about books. I think it's also, we love the, the fact that people do interact with it in such a, you know, on Twitter and Facebook. And that it does feel like there, there is a community of people out there. Whenever anyone says, does anyone read anymore? And there's a lot of kind of, you know, sad head shaking amongst the, of the upper echelons of publishing saying maybe we're, we're in the wrong business. A bit like working in a bookshop. You know, you're, you're always encouraged by the, not only the number of times people have said, oh, I haven't read this book and I'm going to, but that they have read it or that there are other things that they, that they want to share. It's an amazing privilege to be able to do what we do. And thank uh- you. And also, just to say, we've got some amazing episodes coming up before the end of this year, and we're giving you a special heads up. If you're a loyal listener or a new listener who's tuned in to hear Philip Pullman or for our 100th episode, that our Christmas episode this year <laughs> will be devoted to A la Recherche de Tom Perdu by Marcel Proust. So get reading, folks. You've got three months to crunch through it. <laughs> yes. Also, we've done some big books this year, right? Well, the Anatomy of Melancholy that you're about to hear about is like 1,400 pages. It's a book, uh, as somebody famously said, it's, it's a masterpiece. Perhaps not one to read from cover to cover <laughs> in two sittings, which is more or less what I did. <laughs> anyway, thanks very much, everybody. Yeah, thank you, uh, Join us on the Friday, the 19th of July, 2019, in the kitchen of Sir Philip Pullman for the 100th Backlisted. Philip. Hello, it's nice to see you all. And thank you for providing a kitchen table. As a <laughs> well, half a kitchen table. Yeah. <laughs> Philip needs no introduction. He's the author of more than 30 books for children, adults and all those in between. And most famously, the worldwide best-selling His Dark Materials trilogy. He and his work have been recognised with awards including the Whitbread Book of the Year, the Guardian Children's Book Award, the Carnegie Medal, the Carnegie of Carnegie's, the Eleanor Fargin Award, the Astrid Lindgren Award, and the J.M. Barry Award. And this October, David Fickling and Penguin Books will publish The Secret Commonwealth, the second book in his The Book of Dust trilogy, and also the BBC One adaptation of his Dark Materials is due to air later this year. Have you had much involvement with the forthcoming BBC adaptation? Yeah, the sort of involvement I like. Um, I didn't um, want to write the script. You know, having spent seven years writing the book, I didn't want to take it all apart and put it together again. Um, but I've been, I've, I've, I've seen all the scripts, I've uh, approved them all, I've um, been to the set a couple of times, I've met the some of the leading actors. Um, I've said, good, you're doing fine, carry on. That's the sort of involvement uh, <laughs> I've, I've had. Moral support. 
Yeah. Yeah, good. Well, it's very exciting to be here. The book Philip's chosen to talk to us about today is The Anatomy of Melancholy by Robert Burton, first published in 1621, but republished five more times over the following 17 years with substantial alterations and additions. I think it comes in at something like 1,200 pages and is pretty universally considered one of the great masterpieces of English prose in perhaps the greatest period of English prose. So thank you. I'd intended to read this, The Anatomy of Melancholy, this year, but this rather bumped it up the list. Uh, Thank you very much. It's a book that perhaps needs a bit of bumping because uh, although it's universally, well, not universally, by those who have read it, hailed as a great work. Not many people have read it because it's so big. Do you think it is the size or do you think people are just kind of, they find the whole idea of a book about melancholy? Maybe melancholy is, uh, it's not as as clear to modern readers what melancholy is. I mean, melancholy means sad now. Yes, it's not a great sales term, is it? (laughs) Melancholy, of course, is one of the humours of um, ancient and medieval medicine. Uh, The idea that the body is governed by... um, no, I'm going, to have, I'm going to have to try and remember what they were. Uh, there was black bile, there was blood, there was... Cholera. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the kind of temperament that... Ye- yellow bile. Yellow bile as well. <laughs> and one more for the full house. <clears throat> Forgotten it. Phlegm. Phlegm. How nice. Yes, that's... Uh, <laughs> uh, th- this is now not scientifically held to be entirely reliable as a way of making yourself better if you're ill. But it was a way of describing things um, according to a, an old schema. And it, it had a reference to the four elements too, didn't they? Water, fire, earth and air. Yeah. So this was a body of not knowledge so much as belief that had lasted a long time. And yes, Burton... It's managed to last... It, the point Burton is writing, it's, it's held good for a couple of millennia, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, indeed it has. And we tend to indeed it has. And... and um, and he was writing at a time when William Harvey was about to make his discovery of the circulation of the blood. Uh, so modern um, medical knowledge, modern scientific knowledge, was about to take a great leap forward um, in the 17th century. He loves science. I mean, he's, a, he's, a, he's, as, he's as interested in science as he is in sort of long... He's uh, interested in everything. He's, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> everything. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it's all in the book. But he's a, great, he's a great classifier and of putting things into categories and making lists and so on. And this is what he does in this, um, in this book. We'll pick this up again after some adverts. Stay tuned to this. The first question we always ask on that listed is, when did you first come across who and when uh, were you when you first came across the, the Anatomy of Melancholy? Well, I can date it precisely because I've got a copy of the book I bought when I was um, 16 years old. It's called, it's, a, it's a selection from the Anatomy of Melancholy, which is called The Anatomy of Love. And it's, ah. it's the part which deals with love. It was edited by Daniel George, who was a well-known literary figure at the time, and it was published, this paperback I've got, um, in 1962, at which point I was 16. Um, I bought it and I... Why did I buy it? Um, Because I liked the cover, I think. Um, And I was beginning, uh, at the age of 16, I was beginning to be interested in words and language and how they're used, and especially in poetry, actually. But um, I did... uh, I did enjoy what I managed to read of that. So I'd been aware of it for a very long time and aware of it too in in references to it by other people. You know, the famous um, account of Samuel Johnson, Dr. Johnson, saying that it was the only book that got him out of bed two hours before he actually wanted to get up. <laughs> and one of the ironies being is that if, if there is an enemy in this book, uh, then idleness is the enemy. Uh, the idleness well, is one of yeah. the chief causes of melancholy. And, of course, uh, uh, Johnson was famously a man who stayed in bed most of the day and, and, and really struggled with... The, this I mean, is one of the points at which Burton has actually improved on by Johnson because the the doctrine that Burton's leading up to all the way through the book is be not solitary, be not, not idle. idle. And Johnson improved that by saying, if you are idle, be not solitary, and if you are solitary, be not idle, which is um, very wise and very true. <laughs> Where do you Beat be- that, Bernie. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what I feel. I, I, we normally, on the backlisted, regular listeners will know, we read the blurb 
on the back of the book. But we don't have to do that with the anatomy of melancholy. More in sorrow than in admiration, sadly, in lots of cases. um, Because Burton blurbed his own book (laughs) and included it as a frontispiece. So it's an illustrated frontispiece at the beginning of the 1628 edition of the anatomy of melancholy. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read out Burton's own blurb for this work of, I think this is the third edition. Yeah. The anatomy of melancholy, what it is, with all the kinds, causes, symptoms, prognostics, and several cures of it, in three main partitions, with their several sections, members, and subsections, philosophically, medicinally, historically opened and cut up. <laughs> One of the things that's so wonderful about the book is it, it superficially does follow the pattern of an anatomy. Yeah. It has these huge sections and subsections which are broken down on pseudo-scientific lines. I use that, yeah. that term advisedly yeah. to give the impression that the body of something is being taken to pieces in front of you. He also calls himself, in that blurb, he also calls himself not by his own name but by the name of Democritus Junior. I don't know whether this was in order to hide his identity or whether he wanted to live off some of the fame of whoever Democritus was. Yeah, because he was a priest, wasn't he, at the the time of writing? Burton? Yeah. Yeah, well, yes, I think you had to be a priest to be a fellow of a college, didn't you? Well, so Um, Democritus was known as the laughing philosopher. In contradistinction to Heraclitus, who was known as the crying philosopher. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a wink to the knowing reader, isn't it? That's sort of saying I will. I well, will there, are, laugh there are lots of examples in, 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 of winks to knowing readers, and that was that was one of them. Yes, you're quite right. He might well have been the man who invented the wink to the knowing reader. No, I mean, he's, there's so many of them. The Democritus thing is important because Democritus famously is the person who first described what we would now call the atom, hmm. a tome, which is not could not be divisible any further, and saw the universe as infinite and didn't have a sense of a anthropomorphized creator that the universe existed and was infinite. So he was an interesting, very interesting model to take for Burton. Also, he tells the story of, because he laughed all the time, Democritus, the people in Abdera, which is where he lived, uh, were worried about him, thought he was mad, and they call in Hippocrates, who's the great uh, doctor of of, of Mm. the ancient, of the 4th century BC, and he, I mean, Burton tells the story of how Hippocrates listens and the, the preface to this book, which is written by Democritus Jr. or Burton, a.k.a. 124 pages of preface, by the way. <laughs> so this is not, this book, none of, nothing about this book is for the faint-hearted. But for those who persevere, we will prove to you it's worth the, the perseverance. Anyway, he tells the story that Hippocrates actually passes judgment and says, it's you people who are mad. There is nothing mad about this man. This man is laughing because that is the the only response to the folly and madness of the world. Yeah, and that's very much Burton's attitude too. He, he was a pious man. I mean, you had to be as a priest. And the world he inhabits is very much a, a 17th century world in which Protestantism in this country was finally victorious, although there were big battles to come in the Civil War and and later, and you had to be very careful as a Christian because if you said the wrong thing in the wrong time and the wrong place, there might be serious trouble. He's interesting, isn't he? The way he doesn't um, he doesn't like the Puritans, and no. he and he really doesn't like the Catholics. <laughs> the the very... idolatry of the Catholics get a proper drubbing in this book. In a sense, maggot-infested a... relics. <laughs> in a sense, he's the the epitome of an Anglican. <laughs> He's the compromising halfway stage, um, not quite the vicar of Bray who changed his yeah, opinion yeah. with every every succeeding king, but he's a great one for common sense, for broad-minded tolerance, for mm. acceptance of oddity and strangeness in other people's opinions. And that's what makes him so attractive a writer. So we should say that the book is in three partitions, which you've already said from the blurb. And as you say, it's like a, it, they're like sort of parts of the body the three organs that controlled everything, the heart, the liver and the brain. There are threes in all the mm. way through. 
Um, but in the middle bit of the book, the first book is sort of description of melancholy. The second part is about cures for melancholy. And the third part really is specifically about a certain kind of melancholy, which is the melancholy connected to love. But there is a brilliant bit in the in the in the middle bit, the cures, where he it, he calls digression of air. Oh, it's wonderful! <laughs> where he yes. goes off completely, goes off on a scientific exploration of air and currents and wind. Well, these are Burton um, extemporizing, improvising, especially with the the air one, which is just wonderful. Suddenly, he takes wing. His mind starts soaring over the whole landscape and all kinds of things come into it and it's joyful, really. But what's interesting to me is not how far he goes in these digressions but how firmly and surely he comes back to his main subject. He he always reminds me at points like this of um, the painter Constable uh, because if you look at a painting by Constable, uh, depicting, for example, one moment on a summer afternoon with the clouds racing across the sky and the shadows of the trees and the wind and the leaves and so on. That's a painting in one moment. But you know it didn't take him one moment to paint it. It took him hours and hours and yeah. days and days and days. So memory um, it, it plays a huge part in it. He knew exactly what he was doing. So does Burton. And there's a sort of roughness too, a kind of... Um, improvisatory quality about both Constable and Burton, the sense that, uh, yes, he, he is straying from the main subject, but what fun he's having mm. and the things he's going to tell us about on the way and the, uh, the, the, the huge delight he has. This is what makes it um, a book that almost contradicts its title. It is not a melancholy book. It's not a book about feeling sad and how mm. awful it is to feel yeah. sad and, yeah. oh, I'm feeling sad and it's terrible and so on. It's a hugely funny book. A huge. It's a book bursting with life, um, a book which demonstrates almost more than anything else that the opposite of, of melancholia, of depression, is not happiness but energy. Could we get you to read something that demonstrates what you've just been talking yeah, sure. about? Uh, from the from the um, the uh, the passage on love melancholy. How many decrepit, hoary, harsh, writhen, burst-and-bellied, crooked, toothless, bald, blear-eyed, impotent, rotten old men shall you see, flickering still in every place? One gets him a young wife, another a courtesan, and when he can scarce lift his leg over a sill, and hath one foot already in Chiron's boat, when he hath the trembling in his joints, the gout in his feet, a perpetual room in his head, a continuate cough, his sight fails him, thick of hearing, his breath stinks, all his moisture is dried up and gone, and may not spit from him a very child again that cannot dress himself or cut his own meat, yet will he be dreaming of and honing after wenches. What can be more unseemly? One of the things I like about his style, and I say this from, you know, as somebody who tries to write comic prose, is he's very, he does a brilliant thing, which which I see writers that I like do a lot, which is he, he as John suggests, he gets into this kind of musical, mm. high-flown register of argument, synonym, mm. you know, enjoying his own rhetorical talent and then he'll he'll end a section by going but you know that's just what i think it's like <laughs> yeah. it's like a harry hill oh you get the idea with yeah. that um, <laughs> and he's got the, the most marvelous line in little throwaway comments for example and when he talks about uh, lustful monks oh yeah no um uh, <laughs> Uh, they cannot, I say, contain themselves. They will be still not only joining hands, kissing, but embracing, treading on their toes, etc., diving into their bosoms, as Philostratus confesses to his mistress, and Lampreus and Lucian feeling their paps, and that scares honestly sometimes. <laughs> and that scares honestly sometimes. One of the wonderful throwaway lines. And one of the things that I think that, you know, you'd want to recommend this book to modern readers, he's writing about depression. Mm. And he's writing about depression not in a 17th century sense, of it, but very recognisably the, the depression that we're talking about now. He's extremely humane. Yeah. He is full of... Um, it's a disease of the mind. Yes, He's very right. clear about that. It's, it's, He's full of uh, tenderness towards people who suffer from this dreadful condition. He's not making fun of it with all the no. jokes and the laughter. He's not making fun of it at all. Um, he, is, he suffered from it himself. He's very knowledgeable of all its effects and all its different um, phases 
uh, and above all, he's he's sympathetic. A great broad humane sympathy comes out of these pages. And you always feel slightly that he, because he set himself this task that he wants to do it comprehensively, that he goes through all the various kind of uh, tinctures and plants and, mm. you know, the borage and hellebore and all the things that you can take. But where he really gets excited is to say, try and do things that cheer you up. Try yes. and be merry, he says. That's you right. Know. Have, have your chamber light, you know. But, Don't sit in the dark. But he does. I mean, this is a bit from sorrow. This for people who have suffered from depression. No sooner are their eyes open, but after terrible and troublesome dreams, their heavy hearts begin to sigh. They are still fretting, chafing, sighing, grieving, complaining, finding faults, repining, grudging, weeping, vexing themselves disquieted in mind with restless, unquiet thoughts, discontent either for their own other men's or public affairs such as concern them not things past present or to come the remembrance of some disgrace loss injury abuse etc troubles them now being idle afresh as if it were new done they're afflicted otherwise for some danger loss want shame misery that will certainly come as they suspect and mistrust it's a brilliantly accurate, forensically accurate description of the symptoms of depression that a modern reader yeah. would recognise straight off the exactly. page. Exactly. He's an exceptionally perceptive psychologist. He's also interesting on the, the pleasures of the early onset of melancholy. Yeah. It's nice to lie on your mm. couch. It's nice to be on your own and to wander right. about. And uh, to sort of almost wallow in the kind of luxuriant depression or melancholy that... Uh, you find in Baudelaire or mm. um, the, the fall of the House of Usher, something, you know, Poe's story. But then he says, be careful, because this is the start of something that could be much, much worse. He's mm. familiar with all these yeah. things. He knows mm -hmm. where it leads to. I'm just going to um, run through the biographical side. I'm drawing here on the introduction to the 1932 edition, which uh, seemed to me perfectly reasonable that we haven't really increased our knowledge of, <laughs> of Robert Burton much over a century. So he was born at Lindley Hall in Leicestershire on the 8th of February 1577, the fourth of a family of nine. He went to the free school at Sutton Coldfield and later to Nuneaton Grammar School. He entered Brazenose College in 1593, was elected a student of Christ Church in 1599 became vicar of St Thomas, Oxford, two years later, and was presented with the living of Seagrave in Leicestershire in 1630. It says here, he was a ready versifier in both Latin and English, contributed to several academic anthologies, and in his 31st year wrote Philosophaster, a satirical comedy in Latin verse, which was not translated, listeners, into English until 1931. Had to wait 300 years. Um, Didn't have a very big sale then either. <laughs> <laughs> very funny, though. The Anatomy of Melancholy was first published in 1621 and went through five editions during the author's life. The last edition which he saw through the press was that of 1638, for in the following year he died at the age of 63 and was buried in the Cathedral of the University where his brother William, author of The Description of Leicestershire, 1622, erected a monument to his memory in the form of a portrait bust tinted to the life after the manner of those times. And then it just says his life was uneventful. <laughs> there are two little details that we've got. One is that he was on the board, as it were, uh, of the Oxford market, which I quite like. So he obviously had some kind of temporal skills. But there's a story that's told about him going down. He liked to go and listen to the, um, the bargemen talking and swearing. Mm. And the more they swore the more he would laugh in his sort of, you know, in his Democritus Junior kind of yeah. role. <laughs> um, but he likes ordinary people. That's one of the things that comes out of this. But one of the great bits in the, in the introduction uh, uh, preface is he, his, his utopia, which is a rather kind of extraordinary utopia where he suggests that there should be common ownership of, of hospitals and a sort of a, yeah. a, a proto-national health service. And though yeah. he's in, he likes fertile land and enclosure, but that fertile land and enclosure shouldn't be for the enrichment of landlords. It should be for the, for the people who live on the land. It's a meritocratic vision. It doesn't matter where you come from. So quite forward thinking for a priest. Yes, indeed. But again, this bears out what I was saying about his Anglicanism. He's a very moderate, yeah. moderate kind of man. Um, it, it is an attractive vision, 
Um, some things we probably disagree with now and some things are too utopian ever to be put into practice. But there's a humanity there. There's a, there's a humaneness. There's, a, there's a, a magnificent passage, which I'm not going to read out because I genuinely think it would probably cause offence, very near the end of the book in the section on religious melancholy, oh, yeah. which, which, which is sort of a plague on all your houses. Yeah. He manages to run through every religion, yep. including some very contemporary ones, yeah. uh, <laughs> and yeah. causing offence willy-nilly. If, if you exactly. choose to take offence. Yeah, exactly. But not absolutely condemning uh, either no, Islam just a kind or, of general, or Judaism. Look, he, there's a shared inconsistency in all these. His point really is that religion is one of the great things that will lead you into madness if you're not careful. Be moderate. Don't, mm. don't go overboard with your... Enthusiasm. Even be, be moderate with scholarship. I mean, he was very. He's very good on that. He, he's, mm. you know, he, there's the, and again, when he's going through all the symptoms that you can cause, you can have melancholy by having too much sex, <laughs> and you can have melancholy having too little sex. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can have. You can have it from reading too many books, or you can mm. do it from not reading enough. So, yeah. but he's right on the cusp, isn't he? Because you, 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 you also see him trying to get his head round Copernicus. And Kepler, and Tycho Brahe, and trying to figure out is the right. is the sun at the centre of of, of the, 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 well, the universe, yeah, or right. is the is the Earth? And he's he's he, was, he basically says, I don't know. <laughs> this was a, a subject of passionate debate in the 17th century. Even Milton wasn't sure in the Paradise Lost. You know, 40 years later, yeah. whether the sun went round the Earth or whether the Earth went round the sun, and he he has the angels debating it in in Paradise Lost. But Burton still has one foot in the in the world of astrology, of course. Yeah. But then he's moderate about that too. The stars incline but do not enforce. Although there is a story that he'd forecast the date of his own death and um, yeah. in order not to be proved wrong, uh, hanged himself to be yeah. to get it right. I don't know if that's true or not. Right. But he, the, the world he lives in was was it was half medieval and half modern. Mm. You see this wherever you look. There's an interest, as you say, in the the new scientific prospects opening up, which would culminate later in the century in the foundation of the Royal Society and Newton and so on. But there's also the world of um, the, the the stars and the humours and the the four elements and that sort of thing. It's a, he he's, he really is one of the most on the cusp writers in the whole of um, English literature. Philip, can I ask? I mean, you were saying that you first read a section of this at the age of 16. Mm. So this, this book has been a lifetime companion. I've been aware of it, for, and I've, I've, I've turned to it from time to time. I haven't read it constantly mm. like Dr Johnson. <laughs> but, but do you feel Burton manifesting in your work, or is there a thing that you've taken away from the anatomy of melancholy that you, 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 know, you feel sometimes you might be channelling? that spirit i'd be i'd be happy if that were the case i think what i've taken away from him con consciously is um a tone of voice perhaps more than anything else i hadn't read the whole thing um in a disciplined way until about i don't know 10 years ago 15 years ago mm. 12 years ago. the folio society asked various people to suggest a book that they might do in their um, beautiful editions and I said airily, what about the, <laughs> what about the anatomy of melancholy? They said, what a good idea. Why don't you write the introduction? So I was caught then and I had to, um, I had to read it uh, in a different kind of way. So I did and annotated this, this copy of mine with amazing. several hundred post-it notes. But th that, was, um, that was the first time I'd read it in a sort of disciplined, studious way. I dipped into it. From time it, to time. It, I, I normally operate a zero-tolerance policy for dipping in, <laughs> but I would encourage listeners, I think this is a book that you can very happily dip into. Yes. Uh, and uh, reading it from cover to cover is a challenge. We shouldn't pretend that it's not a challenge. Yeah. But perhaps to get the feel for it before you tackle the whole thing and, and it's a great i have to say it's one of the great indexes i don't know whoever did it <laughs> yes. but it's an absolutely brilliant index so you can yeah. have you know you can look up just burton himself and you'll see you know a novice 
but not inexpert in love, which is a, yes. a great one. Or uh, drinks no wine is another, which he's not against people drinking, but he doesn't drink any himself. It has to be a, a dip-in book, doesn't it, really? In practical terms, yes, it does. It's, apart from anything else, it's not the sort of thing you can hold very comfortably on the beach. <laughs> it's very heavy. But, but dipping in, yes, dipping in, you'll always find... What's the, the old nursery rhyme stuck in his thumb and pulled out Put a plum? Pulled out plum, yeah. You can do that anywhere, really. Yeah. What was it you were saying about um, being against dipping? You're, you're a non-dipper. I'm a non-dipper. I'm something of a, a, a biblio-fundamentalist. <laughs> <laughs> a stone like, purist. I, I am, oh, actually. Well, well I'm, I, I, I'm far I, from that. I, it's, really? It's the um, survival of the fittest with me. And if I, don't, if I get you know, a few pages in and it's not working, out it goes. I respect that. Uh, <laughs> moderation in all things, as we've discussed. <laughs> I... I'm a reformed character, and like many reformed characters, I think I'm a bit of a Puritan mm. on this. I realised quite a long time ago that I was starting far more books than I finished, and I was losing the knack of sticking with mm. things. Um, I saw somebody on Twitter the other day saying, if a book isn't appealing to them by the second page, they stop <laughs> reading it. That seems the opposite extreme to me. I mean, yeah. but, you no, know. I have a certain amount of sympathy with that. I have, I have two rules which I apply in a broad sort of way. I don't like reading books in the present tense, novels in the present tense, and I don't like books that begin with a pronoun. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> it saves me a lot of reading. Uh, so when I read <laughs> the first two words of, I think it was a book by Michael Ondaatje, and the first two words were, she stands out, finished, don't want to read any more. <laughs> Done with that one. <laughs> you know, you're, you you famously once said that you were a Church of England atheist. Yeah. I wondered if the sort of, that there is something in your work of Burton's kind of uh, openness to, to ideas. I mean, he, what he doesn't like, it seems to me, is the over-systematised the oh, uh, yes. Otom Bar, pe telling people what to think. Yeah. And that feels to me like a very Pullman... Absolutely, yes. Kind of the idea that one size fits all. And um, there is one answer, and I have it, and if you don't agree with me, I'm going to shoot you or something. That's... that's Yeah, it's the, it's the totalitarian style of, um, uh, of thinking, and I think it's absolutely pernicious. And you, you get the sense that there are other thinkers. Paracelsus... The, the doctor comes as a, as a, out as a bit of a rabid kind of ideologue from this, mm. and he's he's always saying that. Well, of course, that's Paracelsus and his his team would say that. That's the way they think. Whereas he, I mean, he's amazing, really. He says that you can get depression from your parents, mm. that it's hereditary, which is we now know is is true. He also says that one of the best things is to talk to your friends, you know, that, and it's, it's recommending the talking cure, yes, you know, that's right. which. Um, yeah. It, it's it's pretty extraordinary for something written when it was written. He's he's full of good sense. I mean, the the, uh, the idea about keeping the lights on, you know, don't sit in the dark, that's a good one. Um, he also recommends um, St John's Wort, which we yeah. now use as a kind of alternative antidepressant. Y yes, and don't don't be fanatical about things. Have keep up your friendships. All those things sound common sense. The word depression doesn't doesn't do it really. No, no, it, it's not a big enough word. It sounds as if you're a bit sad, and you know you'll cheer up a bit when your favourite program comes on the telly. That's not that's not really what she's talking about. That's not what Burton is talking about. That's not what we really mean when we say depression. My sense of it is as a sort of um, like the, the legendary maelstrom in the sea, a kind of vortex. I had a period of profound depression in my 20s. I, I've come sort of near that since, but what it gave me was a, a, a feeling for this current in the water. If I feel the current, feel the pull of this thing, I quickly take steps to go away from it. And it's something which if you haven't actually experienced it's very hard to convince people of the intensity of it and i think you get that sense that the the you know he he when he 
darkens the tone you know he'll yeah. he'll say you know there's more than one in a thousand are afflicted by it mm. and you, he 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 does really really give you the the dark side as well as oh yes as well as the light there's, there's there's no doubt at all that he he knew exactly what he was talking about there's a brilliant list in his remedies which i won't give all of them but you know this if you want one of sort of modern kind of self-help stuff yeah. you know he's got be temperate in four things speech going about looking and and in drinking and then jest without bitterness, be not a slave to money, flatter no man, undervalue not thyself. Go That's not, a good one. Go not to Isn't law that? without great Under, cause. Undervalue yes. not thyself. thyself. Yeah. Yes. If thou come as a guest, stay not too long. Yes. <laughs> this one I should have had hammered above my door when I was a kid. Make not a fool of thyself to make others merry. <laughs> <laughs> nah. This is good. Keep good company. You know, love others to be beloved thyself. He's yeah. he's. It's full of very very good solid wisdom, isn't it? It, it is. Um, it, it's it's a desert island book, I think, really. Philip, where do you see Burton's influence in literature after Burton? We know that um, uh, he when Keats said that the Anatomy of Melancholy was his favourite book. That the poem Lamia is a retelling of a story told by Burton mm. in the Anatomy. Um, Borges, there's a the epigraph to his story. The Library of Babel is taken from yeah. But I wonder if there are other writers who who you see channeling Burton or who have that same quality of you know discursive humanity. Well, there's something of um, Burton in Tristram Shandy in Lawrence Stern's extraordinary, um, almost cut up novel Tristram Shandy, mm. which Sam Johnson didn't like. He said, "Nothing old will, will do, do long." long. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and Shandy, I think in Shandy, there's definitely parodies. Burton, I think, doesn't he? To, to yes, sort of, but a, there's also the the sense of wide ranging tolerance and yeah. and um, an ability to laugh at the foolishness of people without being spiteful, without being. Um, I mean, it's bitter. it's quite hard to think, isn't it? I kept having to remind myself that there was no novel when Burton was writing the novel mm. as a form. Didn't really exist. Well, it was Don Quixote about the same time. About the same time, but yeah. but he wouldn't have. I mean, no, he wouldn't have. He, known, he, he no wouldn't have known. So he was. It, I, I'm always struck by he's he's writing something that it's clearly he wouldn't consider it as as being made up, but that sort of baggy. He obviously liked Boccaccio. He mentions Boccaccio. That mm. He liked the idea of of collecting tales and mm. stories and of using uh, of using stories almost as parables or as asides to. To, uh, there's a there's a great there's always a great story about some somebody who deflowers a whole nunnery of um, uh, uh, in in Gloucestershire. It's always yeah, the precision. In Gloucestershire, in the, the specificity is a is a <laughs> constant a, charm. He got up most of their bellies, which is just you know this brilliantly kind of direct. Yes, there's no. Um, there's he doesn't. No, he doesn't pussyfoot. No, and there's another bit where he said he was. He, he he was dried out from chamber work, which is a uh, chamber work <laughs> being a, a euphemism for sex. Um, yeah, Dickens reminds me of him. Mm. But Dickens, as a conductor of this extraordinary energy, there's a sense I have in Dickens, especially the early books, um, Oliver Twist, for example, and uh, Nicholas Nickleby, of someone who could scarcely contain the energy that was in his body. He sees a, a, a pot boy, I don't know, and he does think some yeah. curious little thing, and that pot boy comes to life yeah. dickens is like a big house with all the lights on and it's full of company <laughs> and full of things going on and lots of guests that, and so on that's exactly right with with where you feel that with burton with it because of the, the sources are so huge yes. every sentence every couple of sentences there's another book yeah. being cited but he said i lived a silent sentry solitary private life but then he also says he's like a ranging spaniel after game, which I, yeah. which is exact. <laughs> that's the feeling that you get with him. He he can't mm. he can't resist. He's off one way and, and, and another I'd way. I'd like to ask John a question: Which books that we've done on backlisted does the Anatomy of Melancholy remind you of? That's a very good question. It reminds me of Journal of the Play Year, yeah, definitely. clearly, because yeah. it has mm-hmm. that same, yeah. you know, as you were saying, Philip, about the the language that's been pulled in from all different sources and also the sense that the rules haven't been set when the book is written. Yes. So Defoe can do what he likes to some extent. Also in a slightly mad way, uh, this unexpected connection, which has just occurred to me, Haunts of the Black Masseur by Charles Sprawson, just in the 
take a subject and 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 exhaust it uh, yeah with sources and research and yeah. telling your own story in the middle of it the book it really reminded me of and I, I got when I got quite near the end I thought okay I know what this is it really reminds me of All the Devils, Devils Are Here. Here. Oh, I was just exactly. By David Seabrook. Yeah. What's, in what? as much. It's a book called All the Devils Are Here by David Seabrook, which we did on quite an oh, early I episode of Batlisted. We will send you a copy. I'd love to see uh, it. It's a one, and, and the thing it has in we common... Haven't, we haven't even mentioned the devil section of this book, the, the by the way. The book exists <laughs> because the author wants it to. Yeah. Not because it's being done for hmm. to, to fulfil a contract or... But, but because they have something they want, they need to tell you. Yes. And they need to spend time with you. And in Seabrook's case, as we said, it's like being cornered in a bar for, while somebody pokes you in the chest. And, and Burton isn't like that. Burton's a much more kind of avuncular chap. But he still wants to make eye contact with you and say, now, we're going to have a little chat yeah. about this. Yeah, yeah. This is something that's a, which, which is of profound importance to him. And he wants to, he wants to tell you what he knows and... And, and and share it with you. And he's he's you know he does a good one-liners as well. If there be hell on earth, it is to be found in a melancholy man's heart. Yes, God, that's tweetable. <laughs> or all other diseases oh. whatsoever are but flea bitings to melancholy mm. in extent. Tis the pith of all of them. It's pretty good. Yeah. How would he have dealt with Twitter? <laughs> do you think he'd have? Do you think he'd have been on Twitter? That's such a good question. Lots of quotes. Yeah, you know, lots mm, of quotes. Lots of quotes. Lots of, quotes, lots of maybe not material. Much original content. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd like to read a little bit from the. It's a famous section, and uh, I'm just going to give it a slightly unexpected context. I hope this is from the symptoms of love section. This tends to divide audiences, and I know it divides audiences because the first time I ever read anything by Robert Burton I had it read to me and it was a literary festival slash music festival and it was read to a completely unsuspecting room by the author Dan Rhodes (laughs) who took to the stage and read the following passage and uh, divided the room between me uh, (laughs) who was laughing and laughing and laughing and other people who were, were were could not could not get their heads around what was happening. So this is from Member 3, Part 3, Section 2, Symptoms of Love. Love is blind, as the saying is, Cupid's blind, and so are all his followers. Who loves a frog thinks that frog a Diane. (laughs) Every lover admires his mistress, though she be very deformed of herself, ill-favoured, wrinkled, Pimpled, pale, red, yellow, tanned, tallow-faced, have a swollen juggler's platter face or a thin, lean, chitty face, (laughs) have clouds in her face, be crooked, dry, bald, goggle-eyed, blear-eyed or with staring eyes. She looks like a squished cat. Hold her head still awry, heavy, dull, hollow-eyed, black or yellow about the eyes or squint-eyed, Sparrow-mouthed, Persian hook-nosed, have a sharp fox nose, a red nose, China flat great nose, nare simo patuloque, snub and flat nose, a nose like a promontory, gubber-tushed, rotten teeth, black, uneven brown teeth, beetle-browed, a witch's beard, her breath stink all over the room. Her nose drop winter and summer, and that's only the first half page yeah. of the yeah. <laughs> of the magnificent scree. But then, as as that's, you that's you him. read the part earlier, where he then goes on to say, uh, the, "And it's not just women." That's right. Here's the <clears throat> men. Here's the, yes. I say in the forward I wrote, or the introduction I wrote, the, the old man he he describes so well. Um, I saw that old man himself getting out of a limo in New York. Um, accompanied by a young maiden who was probably not his granddaughter, although she looked young enough to be. The things he says are still true. Yes, he says somewhere it's hard not to write satire. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> which, yeah. is, which is true. Which I, I think. Oh. It, I mean, he he. But there is no better compiler of lists, I think, in, in English, and that's 
that's one of the things I think you, you, you would go back to, that passages like that, which are, kind of, I mean, simply the, the, the joy, the pleasure of the words mm. and, and the language. As I think people have said, he, you know, the, the greatest prose work at the period of the greatest, at the greatest moment in the, in the development of English. There's one other thing I'd like to um, refer to. Yes, this is a man who, who, who's deranged by, by love. Of all passions, as I have already proved, love is most violent, and of those bitter potions which this love melancholy affords, this bastard jealousy is the greatest, as appears by those prodigious symptoms which it hath and that it produceth. For besides fear and sorrow, which is common to all melancholy, anxiety of mind, suspicion, aggravation, restless thoughts, paleness, meagerness, neglect of business and the like, these men are farther yet misaffected and in a higher strain. And he goes on to describe someone who is um, obsessed by his, 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 his wife or his mistress. Can he trust her? Can he not? As a heron when she fishes, still prying on all sides, or as a cat doth a mouse, his eye is never off hers. He gloats on him, on her, accurately observing on whom she looks, who looks at her, what she saith, doth, at dinner, at supper, sitting, walking, at home, abroad. He is the same, still inquiring, maundering, gazing, listening, affrighted with every small object. Why did she smile? Why did she pity him, commend him? Why did she drink twice to such a man? Why did she offer to kiss, to dance, etc.? A whore, a whore, an arrant whore. Is it not a man in woman's apparel? Isn't that somebody in that great chest? Isn't there somebody behind the door or hangings on some of those barrels? May not a man steal in at the window with a ladder of ropes or come down the chimney, have a false key, get in when he is asleep? If a mouse do but stir or the wind blow a casement clatter, that's the villain, there he is. By his good will no man see her. Salute her, speak with her, she shall not go forth of his sight. And so on. This is, this is pure. <laughs> if we say... You know, you can buy this book online in the self-help category, and I suppose it falls into that category <laughs> in the way we've been talking about. But if you describe it as a book about depression, first of all, that isn't accurate. And secondly, mm. it's selling the book short. John yes. said at the start, this is a book about yeah. everything. It is a mm. book about yeah. everything. That's one of the fascinating things about it. I just wanted to say, I think one of the things that the book is about, I was reading one, somebody was writing about it, and they described this, it seemed very appropriate for our 100th episode of Backlisted, as a test of bookishness. Hmm. And they don't mean a test to the reader. Hmm. They mean that it's a book about books. That's one of the things it's about. It's made yeah. of books, of his reading. It's a commentary on reading at the same time. Yes, it is. And it's also, and this is the thing I found the most um, remarkable about reading it, actually. It's a book about what you can create and recreate within a book so that you read it. And if you spend a, 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 a few weeks, it's like being given uh, the tour of the, of a mind of a man who's been dead for 400 years. Yeah. Mm. It's, a, it's mm. a remarkable thing. But, and that's not the point I'm trying to make in my long-winded way, is that's not accidental. The artistry of it is yeah. all leading towards that. Yeah. Impression, I think. Um, well, yes. I mean, writers and other um, practitioners of the arts do things that they're not aware that they're doing all the time. Um, people sometimes ask me, did I intend such and such? And, of course, I say, yeah, of course I intend. <laughs> I didn't, though, because I didn't know I was doing it. Mm. Um, some, part of, some part of Robert Burton's mind was, was, was working to organise this thing towards the end that he believed in consciously but also believed in with every fibre of his being. Um, it's necessary to be kind to one another. It's necessary to be tolerant. It's necessary to um, allow yourself to enjoy things. It's necessary to avoid things that make you unhappy. Um, this is, yes, common sense, and, yes, it would fit into a, um, a corner of the mind, body and spirit section of your nearest <laughs> neighbourhood bookseller, but it's also so much more. It is. Um, it's, it's, it's the revelation of a mind which is um, curious, funny, lively, immensely energetic, always entertaining, always sympathetic. Um, you feel you know this man yes. and you yeah. like him. Yes. You like him. You like him immensely. And wonderfully self-confident as well. Mm. If you not like not this, 
uh, get you to another inn. I resolve, <laughs> if you like not my writing, go read something else. Yes. And that's, that's just <laughs> lovely to see written down. How many, I mean, every writer yeah. must feel this. If you don't want this, go and read something else. I don't care. I don't need your approval. Phil, <sighs> do you think this book could have been written 100, 200 years later? Or does it benefit from being created in a period where there were fewer mm. rules about what you could and couldn't do in a book? I, I think it came at the right time from the point of view of English prose, for example. Um, 17th century prose is wonderfully rich and um, full of full of eccentrics who were nevertheless um, gloriously sane. Thomas Brown is another one. Yes. Um, and because it stands, as we were saying earlier, between the medieval world and classical world and the modern world of science, um, it's, it is looking two ways. It's looking back and it's looking forward. Um, it gives us a, an immensely intimate and powerful feeling of what it was like to live at that time between mm. these worlds and between, mm. between doctrines as well, between doctrines passionately felt and dangerously threatening, if you were if you felt the wrong one. Um, but but he's also able to summon from his knowledge of literature and from his um, uh, experiences with, among the bargemen of the river all sorts of language, language that's coarse and earthy and rich as well as um, learned and subtle and intricate. Uh, it's just simply wonderful stuff. Um I, my only reaction to this, my, my, my steadfast and continuing and eternal reaction to this book is one of love, love for him and love for, the, for, for what he's done. Uh, it's the most wonderful book I know. Was it Nick Lezard who said that it's the greatest book ever written? He's the, he's the great Burtonian. Yeah. Yes. But you wouldn't, want to read, <laughs> you wouldn't want to read it cover to cover. Well... Um, right, and yeah. I think that might be the, the most sensible advice we leave people with is to is to is to find a way in. Uh, unlike Burton, uh, we have to draw a line. No significant revisions and added material for us, except where our patient and not at all melancholic producer Nikki Birch deems fit. Uh, a huge thank you to you, Philip, and to Jude for your hospitality, and a low bow to Unbound for enabling such riches. You can download all one hundred count them 100 episodes of backlisted plus follow links clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at backlisted.fm and we're always pleased if you contact us on twitter facebook and boundless and we'd just like to add that neither john nor myself nor our fallen comrades nor our producer nikki thought for a moment when we asked lissa evans to join us for a hastily assembled chat about jl cars a month in the country back in November 2015, that we would still be here doing this 100 episodes later. And that is thanks to you. Thank you so much for your loyalty and your support and your enthusiasm and uh, your feedback. Uh, the whole thing means much more to us than um, certainly I ever show, but perhaps that's true of John as well. <laughs> so thank you, Philip. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, thank you for listening. And we'll be back in a fortnight. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.